It's time for Making It Personal, a personalized SC podcast. Let's jump into today's episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us back with our Making It Personal podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Fersner, and today we are joined by a very special guest, and I will allow her to introduce herself. Sure. Hi, my name is Elena Aguilar, and I am a coach, an author, a teacher, a facilitator of learning, and a leader. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll also share with you that um, our office is in the process of reading um, The Art of Coaching Team, and we actually just um, finished the first three chapters and, and had a really rich conversation about um, about those things and, and how they apply to our work. So, um, and also the people in my office wanted me to let you know that they are super fans of your work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. So we'll go ahead and open up the conversation. Um, I know that through your work, one of the things that you've talked about a lot is educational equity. So I wanted to start off by asking you, what does equity mean to you in context of education? Great question. And I appreciate the question in part because we need to have shared definitions. Yeah. When we use terms frequently like equity or resilience or any term that we frequently use without shared definition, we can have conflict because we're operating from different meanings. And so when I use the term equity, the definition that I use is that educational equity means that every child gets whatever they need in order to be successful and to thrive in school every day. Every child, every day, regardless of their race or ethnicity, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their religion or languages spoken at home, regardless of gender or sexual orientation or ability, every child, every day, period. And when I talk about educational equity, I and students succeeding and thriving in schools, I think about that as academically as well as social emotionally, because kids need literacy and numeracy and science and the arts and PE. And they also need and they deserve to feel loved and cared for and that they belong to a community. So that's the definition. I know it's um, ambitious and perhaps feels can feel overwhelming, but it's also very simple. It's every child every day. Awesome. And yeah, that is a loaded definition, but I, I like the way you put that. Um, and some would say that that's what we've always done in education. We've always focused on, you know, every child meeting every child's needs and, and things of that nature. Um, I know another thing that you're really passionate about and you talk about is educational transformation. Mm -hmm. um, so I would ask in line with what you just said about equity and also in part with what some educators would say, we, we've already been doing that. What do you mean when you talk about educational transformation and how does that differ from what we've already seen happening in education at this point and throughout the years? 
Mm-hmm. Well, first, I think that there's it's important to distinguish between intention and impact. And so educators, some educators may have had the intention to support every child, but that hasn't been what's happened. And we have volumes of data. We have way too much data to show that every child hasn't been supported. In fact, when my son, who is now 16, started kindergarten, he had spent two years in preschool because he's one of those late birthdays. So he started kindergarten and the teacher was doing counting to 10. And he was so bored. And I asked at back to school night in front of all the other teachers, I said, you know, how do you differentiate so that students who have had a lot more preschool experience are being challenged. And she said, I don't differentiate. I teach to the middle. And I was, wow. yeah, I was just sort of flabbergasted. I was like, you're saying that in front of everybody at back to school night. Like you're not even like, you're just like, no, I don't, I don't differentiate. I was like, okay. Wow. And then, you know, three weeks later, she's calling me and saying, your son is distracted. He's spacey. He's not paying attention. He's not putting effort into his work. And I said, he's known how to count to 10 for about three years. And he's bored. He's distracted, right? He's just, he's not, right. what can you do? And um, I think it's also important for listeners to just in terms of this anecdote that I'm telling to understand um, in terms of my identity markers, I identify as Latina and my son, my husband is African-American. My son is African-American. So my mm-hmm. kid starts kindergarten and pretty much right away, his teacher is telling me he's distracted. He's not focused. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking you're not meeting him where he's at. And then I'm also starting to think, okay, wait, she is starting to label him with some of the very problematic labels that are put on African-American boys. She was a white woman. And how is this from his very first experience in my local public school? I had taught in the Oakland public schools for 20 years. I wanted to send my child to an Oakland public school. And this is a district that has not done very well by black and brown boys. And just weeks into kindergarten, she's telling me he's unfocused, he's distracted. Then his first grade teacher told me she thought he had ADD and that I should get him tested. And again, I was like, but Mm. he's not, he's not challenged. You're not inviting him to pursue what he's curious about or what he's interested in. When I talk about school transformation, I am talking about meeting the needs of every child and understanding who they are, what they bring, what they need, what their strengths are. School transformation implies interrogating the underlying mental models from which we're teaching, including the underlying mental models that we operate from that are problematic. So many of us have been socialized and conditioned to believe in and to replicate systems of oppression. And so school transformation is implies a deep 
rethinking of the way that we do school and really questioning why why have we done things in this way for so long? What else could we do? How have the things we have done served some children and met their needs and not met the needs of others? And how do we take a lens of racial equity and look at who's being served, who hasn't been served? You know, there's so many things that I know I did as a new teacher because I was told to do because I just thought, you know, like the way that I managed students, manic classroom management, the way that I responded right. to off task behavior um, that some years later, I started questioning and thinking this is actually really perpetuating power dynamics and systems of oppression that don't match up with my values. I don't want to be doing this. And so that, um, when I talk about school transformation, I'm really talking about like, there is the sort of superficial what we do, but often it's superficial because we're not digging into and interrogating the underlying mental models and how problematic so many of those are. Yeah, I really appreciate you naming that difference between intention versus impact. Like that, that's a crucial part that I don't think people think through a lot of times. Which kind of leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask you. So with this in mind, what do you think would be steps that educators should be taking to ensure an equitable education experience for all students? I know that's a loaded mm -hmm. question, but what, what steps should educators be taking? Mm -hmm. I think the first step is to connect with your own internal purpose, your why, because it is going to be a hard journey interrogating what we do. Okay, it's going to be hard. We're going to need to have courage. We're going to need to be able to sit with discomfort. It's going to be hard. So I think the first thing, it's almost like the pre-work is why do we want to do this? And to me, that's really connected with the kind of legacy I want to leave when I'm no longer here. How do I want people to remember me? What do I want people to remember that I stood for and that I did? I have to connect with my purpose so that I can have the courage to look at my own privilege, to look at the times where I might have had really good intentions and the impact was harmful. And that is hard to look at. Doing that kind of reflection and remembering the things that you did yesterday or last week or 20 years ago when you started teaching and you look at the those things and you remember with new insight and you say, I can't believe I did that. I was, I was doing something really that perpetuated white supremacy, the ideology of white supremacy and the way that I responded to that child's behavior or what I said to that mother or how I responded to a colleague, it's hard. It raises a lot of feelings of um, guilt or shame and sadness and grief. And then I come back to basically what Maya Angelou said many years ago, you know, basically, which was know better, do better. And I say to myself, mm. I now know better and I can do better. And so I will continue to look at the underlying mental models on which I work 
and keep learning. Transforming schools is going to require all of us to look at our privilege and look at our identity markers and look at the intersections of identity markers. And, and it's going to require us to do better. With that type of transformation, obviously, it's going to take a mindset shift. And I, and I like how you named that it's important to connect with your why and with your purpose. Um, and I think paired with that is the underlining tones and the things that we have grown to believe are true um, and just that overall perception that we have as educators. So as a leader in education, um, when you're trying to help shift the thoughts and the perceptions of other educators in regards to student-centered learning, um, personalizing student learning, um, how how do you how does one go about doing that from from the leadership side of things? I think the first key thing for leaders to do is to to create communities where certain values and behaviors are appreciated. So, for example, a leader needs to cultivate curiosity. We're going to have to be, in order to personalize learning, we're going to have to be really curious about kids and individual kids. And we're going to have to be willing to ask questions and take risks and to say, I don't know, and to turn to our colleagues and say, I'm really stumped with how to meet the needs of this student or that student. It's going to take us being more vulnerable. It's going to take us being embarrassed. It's going to take, I remember years after I had been teaching, I'd been teaching for years and I was, um, I was, mm -hmm. I was a good teacher and people knew. And I also really didn't know how to meet the needs of my students who had IEPs. And I sort of, I felt like I was covering up that lack of knowledge and understanding. And I was like kind of hiding and I was like, look, everybody else is doing great. And I remember, I mean, it was probably eight years into teaching when I went to a colleague and I said, look, I got to tell you, I'm, I feel a lot of embarrassment and some shame around this, but I feel like I just don't know what to do with my IEP students and I kind of ignore them. And can you help me? I don't want to do that to them anymore. Like it might've been only one or two students that I had in a group of 30, but it wasn't okay with me anymore. And I had to say, I'm really stumped. I don't know what it means to, I don't know what it means to meet their needs. So I think a leader needs to create a team or an organizational culture, which appreciates and validates and, and, and recognizes curiosity, not knowing, asking questions, saying I need help. It's about culture. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things as an office when we do our professional developments, um, when you were talking about knowing your why and when you were talking about the importance of culture, those are things that we really advocate for before we can even get to all the tips and strategies there has to be a culture of like you said vulnerability to where teachers and coaches and leaders within a school can feel like I can step out and I can try new things like you said and I can 
ask questions and admit where I've gone wrong so that I can get it right mm -hmm. the next time. So yeah, for sure. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and so right now, like I told you earlier, um, my team and I are in the process of reading the Art of Coaching Teams, which has been really helpful for us in just um, figuring out um, just in this first part of the book, how our cultural competency, our leadership experiences, and how our emotional intelligences have impacted how we show up in the world as leaders. Um, from a from a coaching standpoint, I know you also talked about how um, just educational leaders overall should focus in on culture. How can administrators and coaches cultivate trust among teachers? Because um, what we've seen is that in the most effective schools, it happens because coaches and leaders have that established trust. And so it's a it's a working type of situation. Um, but then there are other situations where, you know, trust has been systemically um, misplaced and there is no trust amongst teachers and leaders or anything. So nothing gets done and the students end up getting the short end of the stick. So how do you think that admins and coaches can cultivate trust amongst teachers in order to make this transformational shift that mm -hmm. we're talking about? I mean, first of all, focusing on trust is probably the most powerful starting point. And then leaders need to think about whether they are in a situation where they need to build, like, are they starting from the beginning, building trust? And that's most likely when they're new to a role and new to a, a school. When a school or a team is in a place where there is no trust at all, like what you just described, that's a different situation. That's a repairing, a healing process that needs to happen. The, the organization leader, the principal or the team leader is really the most important person in the building. There's research that talks about the impact of a teacher on students learning. And there's also research that challenges uh, that research about teachers and says, no, the principal is the most important one in a building and has the biggest impact on student learning, which I tend to believe because the principal, the site leaders set the tone for the whole school. And there's a saying that emotions are contagious. And it's a saying that comes from neuroscience. It's actually a scientific uh, fact that our, the, the, our mirror neurons, we pick up on the emotions of others. And so in a school where there's really low trust, I would say what needs to happen is that that site leader needs really intensive coaching. If there's low trust in a school, we need to look at the leaders and say what's going on there. If they have been there for more than two months, um, in other words, if they're brand new and they come in and they're inheriting a, a an organization that is dysfunctional or toxic, then, and that's what, if there's no trust, it's a, it's an organization where, that's toxic. Um, and, and then that's a different, that's right. a crisis intervention. But if that, if there have been leaders there for many years and I say, we need to have a real hard sit down with those leaders and probably provide them some really intensive coaching, or it may be that they are just not, not in the right place anymore. So 
as you know, like the Office of Personalized Learning, we're all about student-centered learning. We're all about supporting teachers and educators who are on that path and also trying to help get the word out in areas where, you know, student-centered um, learning isn't really a, a prime focus. So I would ask you for an educator who would say, you know, personalized learning, student-centered learning, um, that's a thing of the past. I've seen educational trends come and go. There's no need for us to waste our time on that. We should just focus in on what we've always been doing. What would you say to an educator like that? I think somebody who says that is expressing different values or philosophies about education. And it can be really helpful to recognize a name that many people hold different fundamental values about the purpose of education. I think that often in the U.S., in public schools, for example, we make an inaccurate assumption that we're all here for the same thing. And even if we might say we're all here for the kids, we're all here for the kids for what? Is it, do we see them as empty vessels that we are filling up with information? Is the purpose of education to make sure that they graduate having read Shakespeare and knowing the Pythagorean theorem? And is it, you know, are we thinking about ourselves as educators as the ones providing all this knowledge or do we think about education as a pathway to liberation and to transforming society and transforming the world? That's a really different purpose and value around education. And so I think that, that um, this is an activity I often do with groups of teachers because there's, we can actually group our philosophies about education into five categories. And when we can have a conversation about what do you think is the purpose of education and people see, oh, we actually have different values about what we're doing here. And that's why we want to do different things or we don't want to do certain things. So that's what I would hear. Um, that's, that's how I would understand that. And it's hard to try to convince somebody of a different idea. This is again, where I go back to the leader's role is also to help people to come together around a vision, a vision and a mission for a school, right? And our core values and our, and so that there's a role there again for leadership to bringing people together. I, I cannot agree more with you. Um, so for the schools across the nation who are taking on this incredible journey to shift their practices from more of a traditional way of doing school to a truly student-centered focus, um, it's very, you know, it's a, it's a journey as we know. Um, and so how, my question now is how do educational leaders continue to move forward or move their schools forward, um, in, you know, learning more, dabbling more with student center practices and not go backwards. I know this is a really weird time now that we're in, um, but, um, how, how do educational leaders, especially in spaces like this, continue to move that needle forward instead of hitting a roadblock and then progressing mm -hmm. backwards in their work? Well, I talk a lot about dispositions and the ways of being that we are, the how we are. And so I'm again going to start with 
the first thing that comes to mind is we need to be accessing courage because it takes courage to do this work because we're trying to do things that have never really been done before in terms of personalized learning. And now, yes, we're in a really interesting context, right? Challenging, but also perhaps one in which there's new opportunities. We, it's hard for us to do things that are uncomfortable for long periods of time. We just, we resist discomfort. We want to lean into something that's more comfortable. And yet, if we're really going to figure out how do we meet the needs of every child, we're going to have to keep asking questions and saying, I don't understand. We're going to have to look at the impact of what we do and say, we tried doing this and this and this, and we really thought it would work and it didn't and not blame the kids, right? We have to stop saying, well, this would have worked if he Mm -hmm. had, or if their parents, or if they weren't, right? We have to own the the consequences or the impact of, of what we try. And we have to keep trying and trying. And we need more than ever. We need community. We need people we can turn to and say, I'm stuck. I'm exhausted. I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? Again, I just go, keep going back to culture and creating spaces where we can have some really vulnerable conversations about who we are and what we're doing. And we're going to need to persevere and it keep our eyes on the prize, which is every single child deserves an excellent education. I really like how you named again that there has to exist a culture of just being able to take a take a step of faith, take take a leap of faith, and keep enacting that courage. Because once you lose that courage, then sometimes it becomes easy to go back to what was always happening and what was already normal, even if that's not really in the best interest of students. So totally agree. So we'll take a quick break here, but we'll be right back. All right, we are back with our special guest, Miss Elena. So we're going to do our special segment that I like to call making it or breaking. So I want you to choose to either share a make, which would be um, a highlight, something that you've seen along your educational journey in the realm of personalized student-centered learning, um, or you can share a break, which would be a concern, a barrier, or struggle that you've encountered along this journey towards equitable student-centered learning and maybe how you overcame that. So I'll share will make. make or break. Okay. That's great. Everyone chooses make. <laughs> Looking for the bright spots. <laughs> I, I'm going to say this is yes. a tentative make. However, I want to see what plays out. So we're recording this in the beginning of April and here in California, in the Bay Area, I live in Oakland, we have been sheltered in place for three weeks now because of the coronavirus. And so my son's school closed three weeks ago. And fortunately, we are, we do have the privilege to have the the digital technology so that he can engage in the online learning. Um, I'm really aware of our privilege right now. And for him, this 
learning scenario has been actually fantastic. I am. Yes. And one of the things, so he is really? 16. And as we all know, the sleeping schedule for teenagers really ideally is one in which they do not have to get up at six o'clock in the morning. And so his first class every day is around nine in the morning and it's no longer than 90 minutes. And then he has a break and he has been able to get onto a sleep schedule where what I've noticed, I'm just um, amazed. He is not tired every day. And he's usually tired all the time. And I'm like, he's not tired. He's not as grumpy. He's really um, engaged in his classes and loving them. And he can take breaks during the day and he plays the piano. And so he comes out and plays the piano and does other things. And somehow for him, he's a more self-directed, introverted learner. It's really working for him. And um, he's doing the small group chats with with classmates. But I'm really, you know, I've been really concerned and curious about how the changes in everyone's schooling because of the coronavirus will affect students. And and I know that for many students, it's really challenging and for younger kids, much more challenging. And, and for my teenager, I'm saying, Oh, you know, this, this blended learning or virtual learning has some unique opportunities. So, yeah. That is awesome. That is awesome. Now, do you know what strategies? his teachers are using to kind of keep him engaged or keep I get engaged. very little information from my teenager. <laughs> He's very typical in that like, you know, and I'm like, come on, I want to know I'm an educator. I want to know these strategies. They're doing um, instruction on Zoom and they're using breakout rooms and they're doing more independent work or work where they have to get together with one or two other students. Um, and but I think one of the things that is, it's the pace and the not having to be out of the house for 10 hours a day and the sort of exhaustion that he has to take public transportation to get to school. And so just the whole day for him is often really tiring. And yeah, he also misses his friends and he misses the in-person opportunities, but there are some opportunities. There are some advantages that it's, it's really interesting. So I just want to take an opportunity to thank you again for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation and I know that all of our listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation. So to end off, I will ask you to share with everyone. Yes, I am on social media. The easiest way to find the places to find me on social media is probably to go to my website, which is brightmorningteam.com. And on there, then people can see all the icons and find me on Instagram. Instagram is the one that I'm most active on. Um, but we are also on Facebook and on Twitter. And also, if you go to my website, then you can sign up for our newsletter where you can also learn about the different virtual learning opportunities that we are providing. All right. Well, thank you again. And we'll be back in a second to close things out. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode of Making It Personal. Be sure to connect with the Office of Personalized Learning on social media. 
Tweet us at PersonalizedSC and follow us on Instagram at SCPersonalize. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, share with a friend, and tune in for a brand new episode every month. We'll catch you next time on Making It Personal. See ya!